In the summer of 1788, Mozart composed at breakneck speed his last three extraordinary symphonies. And these are works that erase once and for all the idea of symphony as padding, concert filling, which had been very much the view of them up to that point in the 18th century. These three symphonies paved the way for the romantic notion of the symphony in the 19th century, and even at its zenith, the great symphonies of Mahler as expressions of the world. They're crammed with just the same quantities of passion, pathos, grief, and comedy. Well, today we're looking at symphony number 39 in E-flat major, which has an astonishing range of expression and diversity of gesture. It's a work on a grand scale, all underpinned by an extremely taut musical argument. It begins with an adagio, a slow introduction to the allegro. The dotted rhythm you hear is borrowed from the French overture style, and it's almost a timpani concerto. With that dotted rhythm that you keep hearing there in different instruments of the orchestra, that becomes like a kind of motif for the whole of this adagio, and it ends up feeling a bit like a heartbeat. Little dialogue with the violins and the flutes. falling figure that the violins had as their sole territory has now become cello bass preserve and indeed violas and what comes next just shows you once again just how much mozart can frighten and startle in his music the violins rise up to this extraordinary dissonant moment where the second violins are on d flats and the first violins are on c so it's a semitonal clash hair-raising music always reminds me of the shower scene in psycho to create dramatic environments, dramatic textures, things which just take you totally by surprise and take you places where either you didn't expect to go or maybe you don't even particularly want to go. Now, there's a four-bar bridge which links the end of the adagio into the allegro, which is, if you like, the first movement proper. And again, you come back to this fundamental about Mozart. His genius is about contrast. The adagio, if it's played on its own, the music we've just been doing, could be mawkish. Equally, the allegro we're about to play is very charming, but could be possibly only that. But it, somehow it's the combination between the two extremes that makes the magic. It's the joy, the pain, the yin, the yang, the human condition. So anyway, there's this rather kind of jaundiced bridge at the end of the adagio leading us to Allegro. Here it is.
So now we have an allegro, which is built almost entirely on the notes of an arpeggio. Ya-ba-ba, or ti-ya-ba-ba. And the whole movement now is built around that idea. Once more from the allegro. You see there what we're doing is an echo effect, which is something that is always very tempting to do in Mozart and indeed in Haydn and indeed in Beethoven where you get the same phrase repeated twice. You've got to do something with it. You know, music can never stand still. So the decision we've made is to drop back and to make an echo effect. So then the first big forte is just coming up here. And again, you hear ta ba ba ba. It's again, it's just based around the same chord, the same arpeggio figure. Now we get onto the second theme of the movement. Perhaps I should say a little bit about the architecture of symphonies such as these, and indeed all music of this period. It's based on sonata form. The idea being that you've got three distinct sections to a piece of music. If you forget about the adagio that we played before, just in terms of the allegro, you get the exposition, which is the chance for the composer to put forward his ideas, usually two of them. The first in the tonic key, E flat major. The second one, if you're following the rules, in the dominant, which is B-flat major, in this context. Then you get a second section, the middle section, which is the development, where all the ideas are just put through the mill. And of course, being Mozart, he does it in all, all manner of ways that you would never expect, never imagine, and probably could never do yourself. I was speaking for myself, anyway. And then when we come back, finally, to the recapitulation, you get the ideas expressed again, but now basically all in the tonic key, the home key. So this second subject we're going to play now is actually just still derived from the first. It's not like a new idea at all. It's still based around the same sense of arpeggios, particularly if you listen to what the cellos and basses are doing. And he carries on into the development exactly at that point. And you go off into all sorts of strange keys far away from home. And finally, we come back to this final section of Sonata form, the recapitulation. Again, he gives a very wistful, pallid, rather, rather simple bridge into it. And you only have half a sense of where he's taking you. And always a feeling, perhaps, that there's more to this music than meets the eye.
Moving on to the second movement now, even more extraordinary and extreme than the first in a way. The whole thing's built out of one little germ cell of melody, and it's a little fragment that sticks in the mind. That's all it is, really. Simply that, and how, oh how, does he change it, develop it, alter it, fiddle around with it? Let's play once again. Now, so simple is the outward architecture of this movement that you just get that theme just twice through like that, just as we were halfway through doing, and then you get the second subject immediately, which is in itself only derived from the first subject. So we get, keep having this sense of coming back home before he takes us off somewhere else. Now, the winds are in shortly after this with another idea which relates to it, but which is sort of a counterpoint to it. Mozart has such control of drama. He's got that really jagged new idea coming in the first violins, and then suddenly, as if from nowhere, he just rips the ground from under your feet and left with this tiny little B-flat pulsating in the violins, and then the winds are back in. It's so dramatic. Let's play once again, please, from the beginning of the forte at uh, 30. Can you hear the syncopation in the second violins and the violas? Can you cross the beat? Adds the tension. Listen to this wind writing. 
is developing that wind idea even more. Now, you can be forgiven for thinking that now we're finally in the recapitulation. Not a bit of it. There's still a whole load more fury of inspiration and ideas to come out in the development of these various different particles of the whole before we finally get back home. Next up, there's a minuet and trio, the third movement. Staple fare, if you like, for symphonies of this period. The minuet and the trio both derived from ancient dances, both in three, the one a contrast to the other. Now, Mozart chooses to write what I can only describe as a kind of cloven-hoofed stomp by way of his minuet. There are probably lots of reasons for that. You can make up your own. For me, in a way, it's to dispel the extraordinary level of intimacy and creative development and excitement that he's built through that amazing slow movement we were just looking at. Anyway, here it goes. that repeats itself, as the first half of minuets always do, the A section, if you like, and then it moves away from the home key of E-flat for the answering passage, the B section, which is in the dominant key, B-flat major. on. Then when we get into the trio, it is very, very genuinely an absolute contrast to what that music is all about. It's based on a real Austrian Lentler, in other words, a folk tune from Austria, absolutely real, documented and proven to be so. And it gives a great opportunity for the winds, in particular the clarinets, to shine. I'm sure in no small way Mozart was thinking of his close friend Anton Stadler when he wrote this, who was an extraordinary clarinetist and caused Mozart to write the clarinet quintet and indeed clarinet concerto. Here it is. Now a sense of something deeper in the first violins. enough of that. That first violin phrase you get there, can you hear the way that he is suggesting something deeper, a counterpoint to what the clarinets have had? It keeps returning to the same note and then gradually flattening it, distorting it. Let's hear it on its own one time. sense of melting it down, distilling it, pushing it just a little bit lower, creating a frisson, something dangerous, something sadder perhaps. The perfect counterpoint, as I say, to what Mr. Stadler and his friends are doing. Now, onto the last movement. 
I can't think of another example really anywhere in all music where something so extraordinary can be built out of the tiniest little germ cell. Let's just hear the first violins playing the first bar. That's all it is really. The whole thing is built out of that. It's such a level of kind of compositional ferocity and amazement. Look what I can do. I can take you anywhere. I can do anything with this. It's almost like he says, I've got a penny farthing, but I can actually go 90 miles an hour up the fast lane. The whole movement is like that, and it is a roaster for the orchestra. Let's play it all together. multitude of different ways that he plays around with this central tiny little idea. There's an extraordinary moment which the bassoon and the flute has, which we'll just play for you now. Now, if you add a sort of mist of string harmony underneath that, so just the second violins and down, please, no first violins and bassoon and flute. Now, it's nearly there, but there's one ingredient missing. What does Mozart do? He puts in some of his trademark syncopation in the first violin, just to give a bit more edge. kind of sense of Verdian drama, Italianate drama, never far away from Mozart's mind. Now, the development. I was talking earlier about sonata form, how you've got the exposition, the setting out of the stool, the ideas, or in this case, the idea. Then, in the development, it's what further things, what further magic he can work with this same little idea. And he takes us to keys that we would never expect to go to at all. Listen to how the development starts. Where are we going? You play a C minor chord. Should we go there? No, maybe too obvious. Let's go to A flat major instead. Listen to the same thing. <laughs> Big surprise, eh? <laughs> now we're in E major. C major. C minor. Now, cycle the fifths, work your way down. So that last passage of modulation sounds much more natural, so, which is called a cycle of fifths, where you just work your way down through keys, using fifths as your way to get from one key to the next, as sort of junction points. Unless that starts to get trite, he then introduces a new idea. 
And you hear within that extraordinary idea his ability again to differentiate between different elements within the different orchestral families. I mean, okay, essentially the strings are a family and the winds are a family and the brass and timpani are a family. But all the time his magic is about orchestrating so that you've got elements of one family combined with some elements of another whilst other elements of that second family are doing something completely different. So if I play that same passage for you just with the woodwinds, the clarinets and bassoons and the cellos who just underpin it from beneath. So there's that secondary idea, but of course we've still got the da idea in the other parts of the strings. Back at the recapitulation. There's a couple more twists and turns in this final recapitulation. So after all, you wouldn't expect dear old Mozart to just leave it as that. Here's a repeat, more or less, of what happened in the exposition. He's still got more places to take it to. Such is the fecundity of his imagination. Coming to the end of the movement now, the end of the symphony as a whole, what I think is another truly extraordinary thing about it. I said at the beginning that it was very much the last three symphonies that he wrote in a mad dash through the summer of 1788. There is a sense at the end of this that there, it's still work in progress. This symphony does not actually finish, not very satisfactorily, it finishes very strangely, abruptly, sort of shockingly. And in fact, to me, what it's doing is just paving the way for the opening of the next one. It's like there's still work to do, and here it is. I'll show you what I mean. It's the last two bars of this symphony. <laughs> Perhaps a silly, perhaps a trite thing to do, but to me it absolutely illustrates where he's heading, because the G minor symphony is going to be prepared in a matter of weeks after this one's been completed. A real sense of moving forward, that these three symphonies should be viewed as a whole, an expression of the world, the human condition, what makes us all what we are. <laughs> 